Alhamdulillah Nahmaduhu wa nasta'inuhu wa nasta'gfiruhu Wa na'udhu billahi min shiruri anfusina Wa min sayyati amalina Man yahdihillahu falamudillana Wa man yudlil falahadiyalah Wa ashadu an la ilaha illa Allah Wahdahu la sharika lah وأشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله. Verily the praise belongs to Allah. We praise Him, seek His assistance and forgiveness, and we seek refuge in Allah from the evil of ourselves and the evil consequences of our deeds. Whoever Allah guides, there is no one that can lead him astray, and whoever Allah leads astray, there is no one that can guide him. I bear witness that nothing deserves to be worshipped except Allah alone and I bear witness that Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam is his slave servant and his messenger. This evening, bi-idhnillahi ta'ala, we'd like to continue with the chapter Kitab Al-Hajj or the book related to Al-Hajj or the pilgrimage from Taysir Al-Allam, the Sharh of Umdatul Ahkam by Shaykh Abdullah ibn Abdurrahman Ali Bassam Hafidahullah May Allah protect and preserve him The first hadith that we will take this evening it is from the chapter or the subheading Bab Ma Yajuzu Qatluhu That which the chapter entitled That which is permissible to be killed that which is allowed to be killed in the haram, the sacred area or in Mecca and that which surrounds it this particular heading we can understand from it that in this chapter there will be clarification of that which is allowed that which is allowed in the Sharia to be killed in the sacred area and this chapter comes after the mention of the prohibition of killing in the haram area killing animals or killing any person cutting down trees and so on uh, therefore we can understand that this chapter is giving us the istisna or the exception to the general prohibition of taking any life or spilling any blood in the haram sacred area. This is an exception from that which precedes or a clarification in case anyone misunderstood or imagined that the things which we mentioned here are also included in the prohibition of killing. These are an exception. The first hadith is hadith number 216 as it came in our text from the Sharh of Umdat al-Ahkam and that hadith is an Aisha radiallahu anha anna rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam qal that Aisha radiallahu anha reports that the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said khamsun min ad-dawab kulluhunna fasiq that there are five animals five types of animals all of them are fasiq are harmful they cause some harm or damage either to people or their properties, etc. خَمْسٌ مِنَ الدَّوَابِ كُلُّهُنَّ فَاسِقٌ يُقْتَلْنَا فِي الْحَرْمِ And it is allowed 
they should they may be killed in the haram in the sacred area in the area in which killing or shedding of blood is normally not allowed these five types of animals it is allowed yuqtalna fil haram they may be killed in the haram sacred area and then he mentions those in the following order al gurabu that is the crow likewise al hida'atu the kite al aqrabu the scorpion al fa'ratu a mouse wal qalbu al aquru the rabbit dog the dog which attacks human beings then he said wali muslim in the in a narration from al-imam muslim rahimahullah the wording is yuqtalu khamsu fawasiq fil halli wal harami that there are five harmful types of animals which may be killed in al-hal outside of the sacred area as well as in al-haram the sacred area and the exact wording here uh, the wording in the Sahih of Muslim, there's more than one narration similar to this in the Sahih of Muslim and none of those narrations contain this exact wording but the wording is almost the same and the meaning is exactly the same uh, then the Shaykh Abdullah Hafidhullah mentions the general meaning of this hadith he says that uh, there are if a number of different types of animals which by nature they cause some harm harm to the people or to their property or whatever by nature it is their nature it is natural for them to act in this way therefore these animals may be killed in the areas outside of the sacred area as well as in the sacred area as well as the person who's in the state of ihram and if a person is in the state of ihram they have put on the clothing of ihram and made intention by reciting a talbiyah even in that state of ihram is permissible to kill these five types of animals in the haram area outside of the haram area or even in the state of ihram and of course the person enters the state of ihram outside of the area yani the people from medina for example in dhul hulayfa they get in they enter the state of ihram far from the sacred area far from it yet even while you're in the state of ihram there is an exception here for the killing of these particular animals uh, then he says uh, from these five things or these five types of animals which are mentioned in this hadith the legislator that is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala through the words of his prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam has also hinted at or indicated other types of animals which are similar to them other types of animals which are similar to them in the harm that they cause yani these five types are specifically mentioned and perhaps also there may be an indication in these five types that animals that cause similar harm like them may also fall under their category and this is the point about which there is difference of opinion which we'll discuss later then he says these five animals are the crow which destroys crops the kite which 
may snatch or take away someone's clothes, clothing or small items. The scorpion which bites or stings a person, the mouse which causes holes or makes holes in things and as well the dog which may attack people, the dog which attacks people. So these five types of animals have all been described with the description of fisk. Fisk. And al-fisk, it means uh, going outside of something. Fasakha an ta'atillah means that a person goes outside of obedience to Allah. And here, fisk, in reference to these animals, it means these animals act outside of the nature of, the, of normal animals. And in normal animals, don't, without any any provocation cause harm to people or other things. So they are outside of the normal nature, they transgress the bounds and they cause harm or hurt to others. Here he said also that they have been mentioned in number as five due to the fact that the harm that they cause are, are of different types. And if these five types of animals cause different types of harms to people or property. Therefore, it may be understood that under the same heading may come other animals which are similar to them in the damage that they cause or the harm that they cause to people or property. And therefore, they may also be killed due to the harm that they cause and transgressing the bounds. Since the sanctity of the sacred area it's not a protection nor a refuge for these animals. And again, this point about whether or not these are types under which other animals may come under the same ruling. This is the point about which there is difference of opinion. And here the Shaykh says that concerning these animals, the scholars differed as to whether or not the permission of killing animals in the haram area or in the state of ihram is it limited to these five specifically mentioned animals or may it also include other animals outside of the five mentioned and there are two opinions of the scholars the first opinion is the opinion of those who said that it is limited to these five and it, and it cannot extend to others that which is mentioned in the text of the hadith is what it is limited to. And this is the opinion of Al-Imam Abu Hanifa Rahimahullah. He said that the hukum or the ruling concerning these animals does not apply to others because this ruling has been connected to a particular description or title that fits the, those particular animals. Yani the name of that particular animal has been used here and that name doesn't have any other meaning that can be understood except the animal that the name is applied to. Yani, a name has been mentioned and therefore the hukum is applicable to the animal who has been referred to by that name only. The second opinion is the opinion of the majority of the scholars, the Jamhur, and they said that the ruling concerning these five animals is not limited to them, but may also extend to others. However, the Jamhur, the majority of scholars who held the opinion that it extends to others, though they said that it's not applicable to these five or not limited to these five alone, but they differed about what is the reasoning or the wisdom or the point 
that may determine which other animals it may extend to. And they were divided into two groups. Those who said that the ruling extends to others. The first of them is the opinion of Al-Imam al-Shafi'i Rahimahullah who held that the reason for which these animals may be killed is because they are animals which are not eaten. They are animals that people normally don't eat. So any animal which is normally not eaten, which does, is not to be eaten, then it's permissible to kill that animal without any making any compensation. And if a person is in the haram area or in the state of ihram and they kill the animal which is not eaten, it's not a, a game animal that is hunted for food, then he said that it's permissible to do so and there's no fidya or any compensation that they have to make. Because he said that the thing that is common between these animals is that they are animals which are not eaten. Therefore other animals which fall under that same type of heading, they also may be killed and it's applicable to them. The second opinion is the opinion of the two Imams, Al-Imam Malik and Al-Imam Ahmed, Rahimahumullah. And they said that the meaning which is common between these five animals uh, and other animals which that ruling may extend to, it is that they have, all of them have the nature of causing harm to others, people or property. Yani the thing that is common between these five which are mentioned in the hadith and which may be applicable to other animals is the, the nature of causing harm or damage to others. So if other animals fall under this ruling of having it in their nature that they normally and naturally cause harm or hurt or damage to, to property then they may also be uh, placed under this title and they may be killed in the haram, in the sacred area or in the state of ihram. Uh, and he said that this second opinion, Sheikh Abdullah says that this second opinion is a good on a qiyas or analogy which is derived from the text of the hadith itself. Yani the text of the hadith mentions khamsun min al-dawab kulluhunna fasiq. So fasiq is applicable to every one of them. From the text of the hadith we understand that the reasoning, the ta'aleel or the, the reason why they are allowed to be killed is because they cause harm or they cause damage. Therefore, from that we may make qiyas on other animals that have the same similar nature and we may apply the ruling to them. Since the original description or the description of those animals which are mentioned in the hadith, in the text of the hadith is al-fisq, yani going outside of the nature of other animals then or transgressing the bounds and causing harm and damage then if that same description is found in other animals qiyas or analogy may be made between them and they may also fall under the same ruling and here he says he mentions a principle a qaida in usul in usul of fiqh a qaida a principle a foundation and it is important an important qaida الحكم يدور مع إلته وجودا وعدما الحكم or the ruling is based upon the illa the reason or the cause what is the basis of this ruling in this case the ruling of the permissibility of killing them in the haram is because they cause harm or danger to others 
So that ruling of killing them is based upon a particular reason and therefore the ruling stands. Yani, wujudan wa adaman. If that point for which the, upon which the ruling is based, that it's, the animal causes harm, if it is present, then the ruling is applicable. And if that cause or that reason that the hukum is based upon is absent, then the ruling is not applicable. And in other words, we apply the ruling of permissibility of killing in the haram based on the illa, the cause or the reason that the hukum is based upon. As long as that cause is present, then the ruling is applicable. And if that cause is not present, then the ruling is not applicable. Therefore, if there is some animal that doesn't cause any harm, it's not applicable. And if there is an animal that causes harm, then it's applicable. In any case, this type of, this statement or this principle is applicable in all matters. It is applicable in all matters. So it is a good principle to know that the ruling in any matter, it is based upon the illa or the, the cause for that ruling. As long as that cause is present, the ruling is applicable, and when that cause is not present, the ruling is not applicable. So this, is, this was their thinking. The second group, those Al-Imam Malik and, and Ahmed, rahimahullah, who said that, rahimahumullah, who said that, uh, that this ruling is applicable to other animals, as long as the cause for the ruling is present in those animals, then it's also applicable to them. Then he says that the animals, in reference to the issue of killing, the permissibility or the prohibition of killing animals in the sacred area in the state of Ihram, animals may be divided into four categories. And this is an extra point related to the issue of the prohibition or the exception to that prohibition of killing animals in the Haram sacred area or in the state of Ihram, when a person has entered the state of consecration for Hajj or Umrah. Animals may be divided into four divisions. One of them is the animal which is domesticated, like cattle or chickens. The animal which is domesticated, that a person cares for and takes care of and raises. And that animal, it may be slaughtered in every condition, in the state of Ihram or out of the state of Ihram, in the Haram area or outside of the Haram area. The domesticated animal, the cattle or uh, fowl or birds that are raised by a person, it's permissible to slaughter them for the sake of eating in every condition. That's the first type of animal. And the second type of animal is that animal which is not eaten. People don't eat it and it doesn't cause any harm to people or to their property. It's not an animal that's eaten but also it doesn't cause any harm. Therefore the ruling concerning the animal is that it's makruh, it's detestable undesirable to kill that animal though if someone kills it there is no fidya and he doesn't have to make a compensation for the animal which is killed which is of the category of animals which people don't eat it's not killed for hunting it's not killed as a source of food people don't normally eat it but it's makro to kill it because it doesn't cause any harm however if someone killed it there is no fidya the third type of animal is the animal which causes harm to, per, to people or property like those which are mentioned in this hadith and that which is legislated concerning them is that it is right to kill them 
whether in the uh, haram area or outside of the haram area or in the state of ihram or outside of the state of ihram uh, and there is no compensation for the person who kills them in fact it is encouraged or commanded that they should be killed and if that is the animal which causes harm to person or property it is legislated in the sharia that they should be killed whether in the sacred area outside of the sacred area in the state of ihram or outside of the state of ihram the fourth type of animal is that animal which is the game animal the land animal which is running wild on the land and that people normally hunt as a source of food the animal that is normally hunted as a source of food it's an animal that is eaten and that animal uh, if someone kills it in the sacred area or in the state of ihram then they have to make a compensation they have to make a compensation by sacrificing or slaughtering uh, an animal of equal value according to the judges from amongst the Muslims who are from those in authority they will determine what that sacrifice should be in other words if a person kills one of these game animals that is hunted for eating and they are in the haram area or they are out of the haram area but they are in the state of ihram then that person has to make a compensation by slaughtering an animal that would be determined by those in authority so there are four categories here the one that's hunted if you kill it in the sacred area or while you're in the state of ihram you have to make a compensation by making a sacrifice the second one or the third one in order going backwards is the animal which is mentioned in this hadith that causes harm and it's legislated to kill it in every condition in the sacred area or outside of the sacred area or even in the state of ihram and the second one uh, going backwards is the animal which is not normally eaten and it doesn't cause any harm to kill it is makroh but if someone kills it there's no compensation and the first one that we mention is domesticated animals like cattle which are normally raised as a source of food and slaughtering them in every condition or circumstance is allowed or permissible from this hadith the shaykh mentions three points that are derived from it the first of them is that it is legislated in the sharia it is lawful in the sharia to kill those animals which have been mentioned those five animals which have been mentioned in this hadith whether in the sacred area al-haram or outside of the sacred area al-hil in every in any place it's lawful to kill them the second point is that the reason why they may be killed is due to the harm or the damage that they cause by transgressing the bounds and therefore it is the opinion of some of the scholars that whichever animals other animals fall under the same category of causing damage or harm to personal property that they may also be killed likewise in the haram area sacred area or outside of it the third point is that the harm or damage that these animals cause is not of one type some of them cause harm to people and some of them cause harm to property or wealth or other than that so uh, for this reason due to the harm that they cause it is based upon this 
that their life is not protected by the sacred area. These are the three points that he mentions from this hadith. So here you can see that the, the previous chapter which we took last week which prohibits killing in the sacred area, there's an exception to it and that exception is the five animals which are mentioned in this hadith and according to some of the scholars others which fall under the same category due to the reason for which they are allowed to be killed and that is that they cause damage or harm to person or property. The next subheading is Bab Dukhul Makkah Wal Bayt. The subheading entitled Entering Mecca and Al Bayt, yani Al Kaaba, the sacred house. And this chapter contains three hadith which we have mentioned under the title of Entering Mecca and we have mentioned under the title of Entering the Kaaba. These three hadith. The first of them is the hadith number 217 on Anis ibn Malik radiallahu anhu that Anas ibn Malik, may Allah be pleased with him, he reported, Anna Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam dakhala makkata aam al-fatih wa ala ra'sihi al-nighfaru that the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam entered Mecca in the year of the conquest aam al-fatih, the year of the conquest of Mecca and he was wearing on his head al-nighfaru, yani a helmet a helmet that's normally used in time of war to protect a person from being struck or hit with some weapon. فَلَمَّا نَزَعَهُ جَاءَهُ رَجُلٌ فَقَالَ إِبْنُ خَطَلٍ مُتَعَلِّكٌ بِأَسْطَارِ الْكَعْبَةِ Then when he took his helmet off, yani at the time when uh, he felt safe and there was no more danger to him, he took his helmet off his head. At that time someone came to him and said that a man named Ibn Khatal that he has been found connected to the curtains of the Kaaba, yani clinging to the curtains of the Kaaba because he was expecting to be killed. And he stuck to the Kaaba, to the curtains of the Kaaba in order to save himself from being executed. فَقَالَ أُقْتُلُوهُ Then the Prophet ﷺ when he heard this, when it was reported to him, he said kill him, kill him. The Shaykh says the general meaning of this hadith is that due to the fact that there were many wars between the Prophet ﷺ and the disbelievers of the Quraysh which caused there to be hatred and animosity between them so when at the time of the conquest of Mecca when he entered Mecca he entered in a state of cautiousness taking precautions of the possibility that they may try to cause harm to him. So he wore this helmet, Al-Mirfar, on his head in order to protect himself from, any, from the expectation of harm from those people between he and whom there was enmity and hatred due to the many years of war that it took place uh, from the time when the Muslims migrated from Mecca until they came back victoriously to conquer Mecca. So at this time the Prophet ﷺ encouraged that a number of the mushrikeen, the pagans of Mecca, that they should be killed. And he told his followers that if you find these particular people, they should be killed. Even if they are found holding on to the curtains of the Kaaba. And from amongst those who he named was Ibn Khatal. He was a man who had embraced Islam 
previously and then when he was sent on a mission with another Muslim and a servant who was also a Muslim and he ordered that servant to prepare something for him and he found that he didn't do it, he killed him. He killed the Muslim servant and then he apostated, left Islam and returned to the Kafirs. And not only that, but also he used to have his maid servants recite poetry saying evil things against the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. For this reason, uh, when the fighting ceased at the conquest of Mecca and the people of Mecca were safe and the Prophet also felt safe from any attack on him and he took the helmet from his head some of his companions came to him and informed him about Ibn Khafal that they had found him clinging to the curtains of the Kaaba seeking refuge in the sanctity of the Kaaba from being killed and since they knew about the evil that he had done and the ugliness of his actions nonetheless they felt some hesitation to kill him without first checking with the Prophet so they returned to him first to ask him what should they do and he said kill him so they killed him between the black stone and the maqam Ibrahim from this hadith the shaykh mentions five points the first of them is that the Prophet entered Mecca on the day of the conquest of Mecca not in the state of Ihram yani he was not in the state of Ihram and the proof of this is that he entered Mecca with a helmet on his head and also he was wearing a black turban and he was wearing a black turban above the helmet that he was wearing as a mean and this has been reported in the Sahih of Muslim from this it may be understood that entering Mecca in such a situation without being in the state of Ihram is definitely permissible yani, the first point is that the Prophet ﷺ entered Mecca and he was not in the state of Ihram he was wearing a helmet upon his head as protection and a black turban above his helmet the second point is the precedence of Al-Jihad before and Nusuk the rights of the performance of Hajj and Umrah yani even though it is important for the person who enters Mecca that they should be entering Mecca in the state of Ihram for the performance of Umrah or Hajj but Al-Jihad has precedence over that the Prophet ﷺ, he entered Mecca without entering the state of Ihram because the, the, the uh, implementation or the execution uh, of the Jihad it was more important than the fulfilling of the rights of Hajj or Umrah and here the Shaykh said this is due to the fact that the benefits the Maslaha or the Masalih of Al-Jihad was more general and more beneficial than the benefits from making Hajj or Umrah so Al-Jihad it is a more beneficial thing it is the, it, without Jihad even those things which are beneficial in the worship of Allah they will be lost if there is not Jihad in order to preserve the deen of Allah and to protect the Muslims and to give them the freedom to worship him alone number three in this hadith is a proof that Mecca was, con- was conquered by force and this is the madhab of the three Imams that is Al-Imam Abu Hanifa and Al-Imam Malik and Al-Imam Ahmed rahimahumullah, that Mecca was conquered by force not by a treaty and this we mentioned in the previous uh, chapter 
as opposed to the opinion of Imam al-Shafi'i rahimahullah who held the opinion that Mecca it was entered by a treaty not by force number four the permissibility of taking uh, the lawful or the permissible protective measures if a person is in danger and this is not a contradiction to total reliance on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala yani at-tawakkul we cannot say that if a person wears a helmet at the time of war or a vest of armor at the time of war that he is not putting his trust in Allah there is no contradiction between taking precautions lawful precautions and also putting your trust in Allah yani you may put your trust in Allah and you are also required to uh, utilize the lawful means to achieve whatever goal you intend to achieve no one should say for example as they used to do in that time I'm going to Hajj without money because I'm putting my trust in Allah Allah will take care of me no you're supposed to put your trust in Allah and you're also supposed to bring your money and your means to travel and take care of yourself so likewise in war the Muslim is expected to put their trust in Allah first and foremost but they are also expected to have the means of war to be able to perform this great obligation and this is what the Prophet ﷺ did in wearing the helmet on the entry of Mecca on the day of the conquest the last point that the Shaykh mentions is a point which we discussed in the previous chapter and it is the issue of whether or not it is permissible to kill someone to execute the death penalty for a person who deserves to be killed but they are within the sacred precincts of Mecca or the Haram area and here the Shaykh says uh, of the two opinions that we mentioned last in the last chapter he says that this hadith is in support of the opinion of those who said that it's permissible to execute punishment the hudud the sacred Sharia punishments in the Haram area even if it means execution or killing someone and the proof of this is that the killing of Ibn Khattal since his execution took place after the fighting has ceased and it was not in the time period of the actual entry of Mecca yani, he is saying here that uh, he understands from this hadith that after, the, after Mecca had been conquered and the Muslims had entered and had taken control and everything was settled then they came to the Prophet ﷺ and told him about this man and he ordered them to execute him in spite of that so he is saying here that this hadith is in support of those who said that it's permissible to execute the hudud the punishments prescribed by the sharia even if it means killing the person who deserves to be killed in the sacred area and of course we mentioned this difference of opinion last week but there are two opinions uh, and the other opinion is that it's not allowed but in fact what should be done is that that person should be pressured through whatever means to go outside of the sacred area and then the execution or yani the implementation of whatever punishment they are deserving may be executed the next hadith is a hadith that doesn't contain any important rulings it is the hadith number 218 which we will just go through quickly عن عبد الله بن عمر رضي الله عنهما أن رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم دخل مكة 
من كداء من الثنية العليا التي بالبطحة وخرج من الثنية السفلى يعني it's reported from Abdullah ibn Umar عنهما, may Allah be pleased with him and his father that the messenger of Allah وسلم, entered Mecca from the place called Kada and that is a road between the mountains the upper road between the mountains which is in that place called Batha and Batha means a wide spacious area so at that place of Batha there is a mountain passageway between the mountains and the Prophet ﷺ entered Mecca from that mountain passage called Kada at the place of Batha or left from Mecca from As-Saniyya As-Sufla that is the lower mountain passageway also another passageway that uh, you may enter or exit from Mecca through it is called the lower mountain passageway As-Saniyya As-Sufla and this is the way a different route that the Prophet ﷺ exited from here the Shaykh just briefly mentions the meaning of this hadith without any rulings or uh, mention of any benefits derived from the hadith he just says that in the time of the farewell pilgrimage of the Prophet ﷺ that on the night before he entered Mecca he spent that night in Dhu Tuwa and that was on the night of the fourth day of Dhul Hijjah yani the fourth of Dhul Hijjah was the day in which the Prophet ﷺ arrived in Mecca and in the morning of that day after spending the night outside of Mecca he entered Mecca by the upper or high mountain passageway As-Saniyya Al-Uliya and that way it is near the graves of Mecca the place of the Maqabir, the cemetery of Mecca and he says that he entered this way perhaps because it was the easiest way to enter Mecca for those who are coming from Medina uh, and when he finished the manasik, that is the rites of Hajj, he left from Mecca, going back to Medina, from the lower passageway, uh, As-Saniyya, As-Sufla. And then he says that, as some of the scholars said, perhaps the wisdom of going in one way and coming out another way is to increase the number of places that he passed through as a form of ibadah. Yani that he went from one way and came back another way just as when he went to Arafat he went by one road and came back by a different road and when he used to go to Salat al-Eid he used to go by one road and come back from a different road and so on uh, and this way the land as well as the people in those places would bear witness and be a witness of this great ibadah that he was engaging in in his going and coming and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said that the earth would speak as one of the signs of the last days that the earth will speak and bring forth its news and perhaps this is related to this otherwise he says the other opinion that he mentions here is that perhaps his entering and exiting from these ways was because of the suitableness of this road for entering and that road for exiting uh, Wallahu alam, and Allah knows best the last hadith is hadith number 219 and this hadith is a hadith of importance that contains a number of points uh, rulings and difference of opinion and that is the hadith of Abdullah ibn Umar and by the way the previous hadith some of the scholars said although he doesn't mention it here some of the scholars said that entering by this road it is mustahab since the Prophet ﷺ entered by that road whoever is able to do so it's mustahab to do so and perhaps there is some proof for this 
since there are other roads or there were other roads at that time which were wider and more spacious and easier to travel upon then there must have been some reason why the Prophet ﷺ took the more difficult road so some of the scholars said that it's mustahab to enter Mecca by this road and others said that it doesn't matter there's no يعني, ruling concerning it you may enter by any road all of them are the same the last hadith is under the title of entering the Kaaba, the Khul al Kaaba. It's hadith number 219. And Abdullah ibn Umar, that Abdullah ibn Umar, may Allah be pleased with him, and his father said, Dakhala Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam al Bayt. Yani, that the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam entered al Bayt, the house, al Kaaba. The Kaaba. Wa Usamatu ibn Zayd, wa Bilal, wa Uthman ibn Talha. Usama, the son of Zayd, and Bilal ibn Rabah, and Uthman ibn Talha, all of them, may Allah be pleased with them, they were accompanying him, and they entered the, the Kaaba with him. Then they closed the door behind them. When the Prophet entered with Usama and Bilal and Uthman, they closed the door behind them. فَلَمَّا فَتَحُوا الْبَابِ كُنْتُوا أَوَّلَ مَنْ وَلَجَ So, Abdullah ibn Umar, the narrator of the hadith said, When they opened the door, I was the first one to enter. And Abdullah ibn Umar, he was waiting. And the people were waiting. But he was the first one, due to his يعني, eagerness to see what was happening and what was going on there, he was the first one to enter when the door was open. فَلَقِيتُ بِلَالًا فَسَأَلْتُهُ He said, when I entered, I immediately met Bilal radiallahu anhu and I asked him هَلْ صَلَّى فِيهِ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمْ Has the Messenger of Allah وسلم, performed the Salat in the Kaaba? قَالَ نَعَمْ بَيْنَ الْعُمُودَيْنَ الْيَمَانِيَينَ He said, نَعَمْ Yes, he did indeed perform Salat in the Kaaba between the two Yamani corners. يعني that is the corner just before the black stone and the one before that one. And if you pass the black stone, now, if you see the chart here, the arrow pointing from the bottom, that's the black stone. Then after that, it's what is called, it's what's written there, Hijr Ismail, the Hatim. They call it Hijr Ismail. Why? I don't know. Uh, from that, after the black stone, the first corner, the second one after that is one of the Yemeni corners. And the third one is the other Yemeni corner. Between those two corners, they said, he said, Bilal said that he performed prayer between those two corners. That is, he was facing in that direction, towards Yemen. Here the Shaykh says, concerning this hadith, the general meaning of the hadith, when, the, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allowed the Prophet ﷺ to conquer Mecca and to purify his house from the asnam, the idols, and the tamathil, the statues, and the sur, the pictures, that were inside of the Kaaba. There were idols, and there were statues, and there were pictures, actually pictures that were drawn inside the Kaaba. And there are hadith mentioning this in more detail. He said that when he entered, the Prophet ﷺ removed all, all of those things. He purified the house from those things which are prohibited. Uh, and he entered the Kaaba, and along with him were two of his companions who assisted him, that is Bilal radiallahu anhu and Usama ibn Zayd radiallahu anhu may Allah be pleased with him and his father and the one who was watching the door, Uthman ibn Talha radiallahu anhu so the three of them entered with him then they closed the door behind them so that the people would not be crowding in 
and distract the Prophet ﷺ from the worship that he intended to perform inside of the Kaaba so that he could concentrate on what he intended to do that was calling upon Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, making salat and thanking Allah for the virtue or the bounty which he has given him in the conquest of Mecca. So when they stayed in there a long time, finally the door was opened and Abdul ibn Umar radiallahu anhuma, being the eager young man that he was always seeking to know everything that the Prophet did whether it was ibadah or not ibadah. He used to follow the Prophet in the way he walked and the places that he went and wherever he stopped and whatever he did he used to do likewise that was the thing that Abdul ibn Umar was known for that he used to follow the Prophet in everything he did whether it was worship or otherwise for that reason he was very close behind them and when the door was open he was the first one to enter so he asked Bilal did the Messenger of Allah perform Salat and he said yes and he performed the Salat between the two Yamani corners at that time the Kaaba was resting upon six pillars, six, not like today, four. But it used to extend to that place, that horseshoe-shaped structure, the Hatim, which is normally referred to as Hijr Ismail. The Kaaba used to extend out to that distance. And when they were rebuilding the Kaaba, because they didn't have enough finance from lawful means, the pagans of Mecca, pagans, they were mushrik, but they believed in the sacredness of the Kaaba to the extent that they refused to use wealth that was gained from interest or from alcohol or from gambling or for any, from any unlawful means. So when they ran out of lawful wealth, they didn't have any means to, to, to finish the Kaaba to its extent. So they stopped there and they just built that little wall to show the extent of where the Kaaba originally was before it was rebuilt. And for this reason, many of the scholars said that this portion is actually included as a part of the Kaaba and therefore no one should go through there if you are making tawaf you have to go around it because if you go through there you have not made tawaf and likewise many of the scholars said that it's permissible to pray inside the Hatim and it is as though you are praying inside of the Kaaba so here uh, he said that the Kaaba was on six pillows at that time and the Prophet ﷺ stood facing the two Yamani corners with three of the pillows behind him three of them behind him the three from this side the black stone side and three of them in front of him two to his right and one to his left and he between those pillows he performed his salat of two rakah uh, and also he mentions that the distance he was from the wall that he was facing was three arm lengths or zira'ah three arm lengths from the wall yani not that far from the wall uh, and he performed two rakah there and he also made dua or supplication in every one of the four corners of the Kaaba and he, after he performed two rakah he also made supplication in all the four corners of the Kaaba and then the door was opened and Abdul ibn Umar entered from this hadith the Shaykh mentions two points the first of them that it is mustahab it is mustahab, commendable, recommended or beloved that a person may enter the sacred Kaaba. It is mustahab to enter it and as well to pray in it and as well to make dua or supplication in it. Shaykh al-Islam But it is not obligatory nor is it a sunnah that people should attempt to do and feel as though if they don't do it they have missed out something. Number two, he said that entering it is not part of the rites of Hajj but entering it in and of itself is a virtuous deed 
if anyone is allowed to do so, it is a, a virtuous deed, it is commendable. But it's not part of Hajj, it is not, rec- it is not connected to Hajj in any way. Whoever goes to perform Hajj shouldn't concern themselves about entering the Kaaba. For this reason, the Prophet ﷺ didn't enter the Kaaba when he went to perform Hajj. But he only entered it on that occasion of the conquest of Mecca. And according to the best opinion of the scholars, he only entered the Kaaba one time in his life. That was on the day of the conquest of Mecca. Here's the shahat. There's difference of opinion amongst the scholars concerning the issue of prayer. The Salat inside of the Kaaba or above the Kaaba or in the Hatim area, the Hijr Ismail. There's difference of opinion concerning the Salat inside of the Kaaba or above it. Uh, and he said that as for the voluntary nafila, voluntary prayers, the jamhur or the overwhelming majority of the scholars are in agreement that it is permissible to do so except that which has been reported from Abdullah ibn Abbas who held that it was not permissible to pray the nafil prayers inside of the Kaaba or above it. Uh, but the majority of scholars agree on the permissibility of praying nafil. Nafil, voluntary prayers inside the Kaaba or above it. But the difference of opinion is in reference to the Fard, obligatory prayer. Is it allowed to perform the Fard, obligatory prayer inside of the Kaaba or above the Kaaba or in the Hijr Ismail, Al Hatim? The first opinion of the two opinions of the scholars is the opinion of those who said it is not lawful, correct, or allowed to perform the obligatory prayers inside of the Kaaba. But what is allowed only is the voluntary nafila prayers. And this opinion is the opinion of Al-Imam Malik rahimahullah and Al-Imam Ahmed rahimahullah. In the, uh, yani that it is not correct to perform obligatory prayers inside the Kaaba. And their opinion is based on the verse of Quran in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَحَيْثُ مَا كُنْتُمْ فَوَلُّوا وُجُوهَكُمْ شَطْرَةً yani wherever you may be, then you should turn your faces in the direction of the Kaaba. You should always face the Kaaba, wherever you may be. If you are in Yemen, from the south, then you face north. If you are in Medina, in the north, you face south, and likewise. If you are in the east, you face west, and in the west, you face east. So wherever you are, you should face the Kaaba. Based on this, they said that if a person is praying inside of the Kaaba or above, on top of the roof of the Kaaba, uh, then that person would not be facing that person would not be facing the Kaaba. If they are inside of the Kaaba, they would not be facing it. And if they are above it, they would not be facing it. However, they said in reference to the Nafu prayers, yani the conditions for Nafu prayer are not like the Fard prayer, they are less and therefore they allowed the performance of Nafu prayer inside of the Kaaba. However, they said the obligatory prayers is not permissible. The second proof that they use is that which has been reported, Ruya and Ibn Abbas. It has been reported from him and the language used here, Ruya, indicates that the hadith is not authentic. And whenever the scholar said Ruya an, it means it has been reported from somebody. It is a hint or an indication that perhaps there is some question about the authenticity of their hadith. He said it has been narrated from Ibn Umar and the Nabi that the Prophet prohibited that a person may pray in seven places. And this is their second proof 
they said that he said you should you are not allowed to pray in seven places from amongst them is the garbage dump the second of them is the slaughterhouse the third of them is the graveyard the fourth of them is in the middle of the road the fifth of them is the bathhouse and the sixth of them is the camel stables where the camels rest the last of them is fawqa dhahri baytillah yani above the house of Allah the, above the roof of the Kaaba and this hadith is reported from At-Tirmidhi they said this is also a proof that it's not permissible to pray above the Kaaba the second group whose opinion is stronger is the opinion of Imam Abu Hanifa rahimahullah and Imam Al-Shafi'i rahimahullah uh, who held that it is correct and permissible to pray the obligatory prayer inside of the Kaaba as well as above the Kaaba as well as in the half uh, circle area the Hatim or Hijr Ismail and their proof is the fact that the Prophet ﷺ prayed inside the Kaaba the fact that he prayed in the Kaaba is a proof that it's permissible to pray inside of it and then they said also that whatever is confirmed in reference to the voluntary prayers Nafila then it is also confirmed in reference to the Fard prayer and there is no difference between them except by Dalil and whoever says that it's allowed to pray the Nafil prayer but not the Fard prayer they said no they are the same the ruling is the same unless you have a proof showing that it's allowed for voluntary prayers but not for Fard prayers otherwise if prayer is allowed in that place it's allowed for all types of prayer whether voluntary or obligatory the third argument they said that if we accept the argument that this verse uh, prohibits or denies the acceptability of praying the fard prayer because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said where well, you may be faced towards the Kaaba then they said if that's so then it is also a proof showing the unacceptability of praying the voluntary prayers and if you have to face the Kaaba if this is a condition by Allah in the Quran for prayer that you have to face the Kaaba then it's not only for the obligatory prayers it's likewise for the voluntary prayers then they said concerning the hadith of Ibn Umar the seven places where the Prophet ﷺ prohibited anyone to pray in from amongst them is above the Kaaba they said that if that hadith was Sahih then it would be Aam it would be general including obligatory prayers as well as voluntary prayers if he prohibited praying in seven places then it's not only applicable to the Farq prayer but it also would be applicable to the voluntary prayers and which those people who argued against the acceptability of praying the obligatory prayer they allowed the voluntary prayer so they said then if that hadith is a prohibition for the uh, obligatory prayers it should also be a prohibition for the voluntary prayers like Abdul Fatah telephone call uh, however however that hadith has been declared to be weak by the one who narrated it Al-Imam At-Tirmidhi rahimahullah and Al-Imam Bukhari rahimahullah said Fihi rajulun matruq that in the isnad is naam a, a narrator who is matruq abandoned this is one of the worst descriptions that can be given to a narrator matruq only worse than that is to accuse him of lying so that hadith is not only da'if but it is da'if jiddan so this hadith is also not a proof for them 
And finally, they also, those who said it's permissible to pray, the obligatory as well as the voluntary prayer, used as a proof the hadith of the Prophet وسلم, in which he said, جُعِلَتْ لِي الْأَرْضُ مَسْجِدًا وَتَهُورًا That the earth has been made for me as a masjid, a place of prayer, and tahura, and a means of purification. A means of purification. Tahur is different from tuhur. Tuhur means the purification itself. And tahur means the thing that you use for purification. Just like wudu is the act of making ablution. And wadu is the water that's used for ablution. So here he used the word tahur. Tahur, it doesn't mean purification. It means the thing that you use for purification. So the earth has been made for me as a masjid, a place of salat, and as a tahur, a means to be used for purification. So the earth, you can use it to purify yourself. Tayammum. And you may also pray in the earth. So they said this hadith is a proof for them. If the earth has been made as a masjid, then the Kaaba, it has more right that it may be used as a place of prayer than any other place in the earth since it is a special sacred place made sacred by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala from the time that he created the heavens and the earth. Wallahu alam. This is the end of... Uh, the discussion, alhamdulillah, we finished this chapter <laughs> and we have time to take questions. Uh, as it has been suggested by one of our brothers that we should first start with the questions on the handout sheet. Uh, oh, subhanallah. This message came to me, I didn't read it, I thought it was a question. It was for Abdul Fatah to go and call. Malish. <laughs> okay, uh, the questions that we had at the end of the sheet, we should attempt to answer them first and then if there are any comments or questions from the brothers or sisters you may send them. The first question on the handout sheet it is explain. Explain the exception to the prohibition of killing in the sacred area of Mecca. What is the exception to the prohibition of killing in the sacred area of Mecca? Now, the exception, it is not allowed to kill in the sacred area, in the haram, nor in the state of ihram. But the exception to this is five types of animals which cause harm to person or to property. And those animals, did we say, mention some of the animals permissible to kill in the haram, and why? What are some of those animals? The crow. Kite. Scorpion. Mouse. And the rabbit dog. Why, why are these allowed to be killed? What is the reason? Because they are harmful. Because they cause harm either to people or cause harm to property. Uh, I think the difference, Allahu Alam, at least that's what we use in America. We say a mouse is this little small thing and the rat is a big one. That's very dangerous. That's what I know is the difference. Al-Fa'ah, ma'am. As far as I know, it is a mouse. Allahu alam. It may be applicable in Arabic to both of them. It's some kind of a bird that is, uh, it, it takes things, it picks up little things. Ma'am? A bird of prey. Inshallah. Uh, the third question, discuss the ikhtilaf concerning whether the permission to kill in the haram is limited to those animals mentioned in the hadith or includes other animals and why? Yani what is the ikhtilaf 
concerning the permission to kill in the haram? Is it limited to the five animals mentioned or does it, does it include others and why? Naam. Two opinions. What are the two opinions? The killing is limited to these five. That's one opinion. Since they are mentioned by name, by the text of the hadith, then this is what is intended. Uh-huh. The other opinion? No. The, the second opinion is those who said that it's not limited to those, but those are general types. And if other animals have the same characteristic of causing damage to property or harm to people, then the reason for the permission to kill them is also applicable to those other animals that also cause harm or damage to property. Therefore they said it is extended to those other animals. We will come to a question about this. Allahu <laughs> alam. But uh, my own inclination normally is to follow the text of the hadith. Unless there is a strong reason to show otherwise. And uh, the safer opinion, what is clear is that those are allowed, those five which are mentioned are clearly allowed to be killed. As for the others, they have a strong argument. But um, it's not uh, absolutely convincing. Allahu alam. And not in this hadith, but there's other hadith in Bukhari which mentioned that the Prophet ﷺ was with some of his companions and a snake came and he ordered them to kill it. But it escaped from them. And he said, it has escaped from your harm and you have escaped from its harm. <laughs> so also snakes, yani perhaps even this hadith may be a proof for those who said that it extends to other animals. Because likewise you find that the snake comes under the category of these previous animals, especially it is similar to the scorpion that bites or cause harm naam, to the people. So perhaps their opinion is definitely strong, no doubt about it. And Allahu A'lam. Yani I don't have the yani clear uh, position yani that one is absolutely stronger. But the safer opinion is the text of the hadith and the other opinion that says that those other animals that fall under the category may, uh, may also be falling under the same ruling, then their opinion is strong, no doubt. It is also a very strong opinion. List the four categories of animals mentioned by the author, yani by the explainer of the book, uh, that is Shaykh Abdullah ibn uh, Ali Bassam. List the four categories of animals mentioned by the author related to the Haram, sacred area of Mecca. He said that animals are classified into four categories. What are those four categories? Domesticate, domesticated animals, those which are raised for some benefit, yani like cattle or chicken or something like this, sheep or goat. And those, the ruling concerning them is that it's permissible to sacrifice them for that purpose which they have been raised for. The second category, those which are generally not, are animals which are not eaten, but, but they don't cause any harm. What is the ruling concerning them? It is makro to kill them. But if they are killed, there is no fidya. There is no compensation that has to be paid. A third group, those animals which cause harm, which are from the group that's mentioned in the hadith and the ruling concerning them, that it is permissible. It is legislated that they should be killed. And there is no, of course, compensation to pay. It is encouraged 
that they should be killed. Even in the haram area, or outside of the haram area, in the state of ihram, or outside of the state of ihram. And the last category he mentioned, game animals. Those animals which are normally eaten by the people. If they are found in the sacred area, or the person is in the state of ihram, even outside of the sacred area, but they are in the state of ihram, then it's not allowed to hunt them. If somebody hunts them and kills them, then they have to pay the fidya. That is, they have to make a sacrifice of that which may be equal in value to the animal which they have hunted. And perhaps also we may mention here that if there are people traveling and they are in the state of ihram, before they reach the sacred area, if there is some game animal that appears to them and there are people in their company who are not in ihram, it's allowed for them to hunt it. But those who are in ihram should not help them in any way. Not even to point to it or to pass them a weapon or anything else. They are not allowed to help in any way. But if those who are not in ihram and they have not reached the haram area, if they see an animal, game animal, they may hunt it. But those who are in ihram may not. Of course, once they enter the sacred area, then those who are in ihram or not in ihram, they are not allowed to hunt it. If they did, then they have to pay the compensation. And inshallah, we finish the questions after that. Then. Now, and repent. Uh, the remaining questions, just quickly. <coughs> Did the Prophet ﷺ enter Mecca in ihram dress? Explain. No, he didn't enter in ihram. Type what? How was he dressed when he entered? Well, how do we know he was not in ihram? Because he was covering his head. And it's not allowed for the muhram to cover the head. He was wearing a helmet. And he was also wearing a, a black turban. He entered Mecca and the conquest of Mecca wearing a black turban as indicated in the hadith of Sahih Muslim. Uh, discuss the hukum or the ruling of executing the death penalty in the haram. Is it allowed to kill someone who deserves to be killed inside the haram? <laughs> two opinions now. There are two opinions. What are the two opinions? It is permissible to kill them inside the haram. That's one opinion. Uh huh. Now, that it's not allowed to kill them in the haram, but they should be forced in any way, pressured to get out of the haram area, then they may be executed, whatever is the punishment, whether it's death penalty or otherwise, outside of the haram area. Also, the scholars, as we mentioned last week in the previous chapter, made a distinction between those who committed an act outside of the haram and then escaped to the haram. And they said that those who committed the act inside of the haram, definitely they should be punished in the haram. Otherwise there will be confusion and disorder and chaos. But if somebody committed an act outside of the haram and then escaped to the haram, yani they didn't violate the sanctity of the haram, but they escaped to it, then perhaps this is an indication of their repentance. And that person should be given some consideration, at least they should not be punished inside. In any case, those who said that you may be punished in the haram, they said that the ruling concerning executing the hudud or the prescribed punishments are general for every place and time. And therefore they should be executed or the, the punishment should be enacted even if it's the death penalty and they use as a proof what? This hadith, the Prophet ﷺ ordered this man to be killed even though he was in the haram, in Mecca at the Kaaba, holding on to the curtains of the Kaaba. Can you explain that 
The people who said that it's not permissible, they said that the sanctity of the haram was lifted during the day of the conquest of Mecca, and therefore this hadith of the killing of Ibni Khatil, uh, uh, that his killing is not a proof for the permissibility, because it was in the time that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made lawful for fighting in Mecca. And the others said, but the fighting had ceased already. The Prophet had already re- took off his helmet, and he was uh, relaxed and comfortable and safe. Allahu alam in any case, the stronger opinion, and Allah knows best, and the safer opinion is that the execution should not be performed in the haram. Because the sanctity of the haram, from the time that Allah created the heavens and the earth, made that land special and different than any other place in the earth. وَمَنْ دَخَلَهَا كَانَ آمِنًا Whoever entered it, they are safe. Even the pagans, the mushrik, before Islam, if someone killed their family member, and they found them in the haram area, they wouldn't touch them. So what about Islam? Allahu uh, Is the use of armor or a helmet an indication of lack of trust, lack of tawakkul? Why is it not? Shouldn't we just trust in Allah alone and don't worry about uh, taking precautions? Huh? Now, Allah expects from us to take precautions and to use the means that He has given us. So putting your trust in Allah is one thing. And taking precautions is another thing. And there's no contradiction between them. The Prophet ﷺ wore a helmet and he was the best of those who put their trust in Allah. Because this is the way a human being is supposed to act. You are supposed to take precautions and use the means for whatever you want to achieve. Don't just think that anything will happen. Just by trusting in Allah, you need the sustenance, it will just come to you without working. You want to have children, you will have children without getting married. It's not so. You have to do what you are supposed to do, then things will happen after you put your trust in Allah. I don't know. <laughs> it is an old one from a long time ago, but I didn't see it from 20 years ago. Now I don't know. Uh, what did the Prophet ﷺ do inside Al-Kaaba upon Fath Makkah? And at the time of the conquest of Makkah, what did the Prophet ﷺ do inside of the Kaaba? He prayed. Now between the two Yemeni corners, and he also. Huh? He removed the idols, the statues, the pictures, and he uh, and he made dua, supplication in every corner of the Kaaba. This is, this is the hukum or ruling concerning entering the Kaaba for Hajj. For Hajj? Huh? It has no relation to Hajj. The Prophet didn't enter the Kaaba when he made Hajj, but he only entered the Kaaba on the conquest of Mecca. So if anyone entered at any time, it is a good act, it's mustahab, but it's not related to hajj in any way. Naam? Huh? Ihram what? What is the ruling concerning entering the Kaaba for hajj? And if a person goes to make hajj, is it fard, sunnah, wajib to enter the Kaaba? It is not fard, it is not sunnah. It is no relation to hajj. It has no relation to hajj. The last question discussed the ikhtilaf concerning the nafil and fard, yani the voluntary and obligatory prayers in or upon the Kaaba. You can pray. <laughs> First the nafil prayer. What is the ruling concerning nafil prayer in or above the Kaaba? The, the Jumhur of scholars said that it is permissible with the exception of Ibn Abbas. The, 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 the nafil prayer. The ruling concerning the nafil prayer is that they are in agreement by the Jumhur that it's permissible to pray the Nafu prayer. Okay, the Fard prayer. There's different agreement about the Fard prayer. Some of them said that. 
that it's not permissible. Why? Because the Quran says, face the Kaaba, wherever you may be. So if you're inside of it or above it, you don't face it. The other one said what? That is permissible. Why? Because? Because the same ruling that applies to an apple prayer applies to fard prayer, unless there's a proof showing a distinction. And also the Prophet ﷺ performed the prayer in there. Also. And also, the Prophet, or the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, he said that the earth has been made as a place of prayer for me, a masjid, and a means of purification. So the Kaaba has more right that it should be a masjid than any other place in the earth. This is the most sacred place in the earth. This is the end of what we discussed. If there are any comments or questions? إنهم يكيدون كيدا